Hello and welcome back to another episode of Oral Max Facts. These are your hosts, Maria McBarry and Riddhi Patel. We're coming to you guys with a very unique episode, fitting for the time. Yep, that's right, guys. So today, Miriam and I are here talking about the hottest topic, which is COVID-19. So I think one thing we can all agree on is that during this time of uncertainty, we all have to be adaptable and creative in order to survive. The battles that we face today are very unique. And if you pay close attention to the intersections, there are many valuable lessons that are coming out of this pandemic experience. Today's episode of Roll Max Facts we are actually inviting one of our Mount Sinai alum and a dear friend, Dr. Damien Finley. (laughs) So Dr. Finley actually had a personal experience with COVID-19 not too long ago. And we are very thankful that he's willing to share his experience with us. And along the way, we also want to just discuss some current literature on COVID-19 and see where things are. Dr. Damien Finley is the current chief of Division of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery at Mercy Hospital, which is a level one trauma center in St. Louis, Missouri. To say he's passionate about teaching residents at Mercy Hospital is an understatement. He also trains fellows in TMJ and facial trauma. So if any of you guys are interested out there, you will be rest assured to be in excellent hands. So, Dr. Finley, thank you so much for joining us today. As, uh, as Riddhi said, you are a dear friend. So, can we call you Damien for the, throughout this podcast? I would insist that you call me Damien because <laughs> friends that happen to be colleagues. So, Damien, a few weeks ago, COVID-19 became a very personal story for you. And we're thankful that you're here with us today after fighting this personal battle can you tell us more about your, your experience and how it helped you be prepared for this pandemic personally and professionally? Well, first off, I would be remiss if I didn't say thank you to you guys for even having me on this episode. I appreciate that. You guys are making Mount Sinai proud. <laughs> Continue to live on the, the legacy of, uh, of Dr. Montezem's uh, children. Dr. Montezem has been coming up in two episodes in a row. Right. He's amazing. We, we always call him Papa. I call him Popovich. <laughs> Popovich. Basketball coach. That's so, awesome. <laughs> you guys have started this initiative where you have a platform that's both educational, yet it's open to having dialogues like this. Um, I guess either way it contributes to education. So in regards to preparing for the pandemic, what we were witnessing, obviously, were the, way that, the ways that the pandemic had hit other areas in our world, specifically Wuhan, China, and Italy. And then it initially got here to the United States and it was terrorizing the coastal areas like California and New York. So we had several meetings at our institution um, because of the fact that we were discussing the things that many other institutions were discussing, the availability of PPE, uh, whether or not we had enough testing, and also you know, implementing protocols to mitigate the spread of the virus, such as social distancing measures. And so emotions were running really high at our institutions as we saw COVID like wreaking havoc you know, everywhere around the world. And then it had finally touched our shores here in the United States. And then about four or five days after my last meeting, when I developed symptoms. So on the evening of March the 18th, I began having some subjective fevers, uh, myalgias, arthralgias, and chills, and some sinus congestion, and also had a sore throat. So, and I took my temperature and it was 100.4. So at that point, I was kind of suspicious that I was developing early signs of 
wow. Um, it's just giving me chills thinking about what you were going through. Um, and you have wife and kids at home too, right? I mean, this couldn't have been easy for your family. No, it was very difficult. So I kind of quickly want to comment on the meetings about PPE and limited testing. When it first came out in March, I would think, okay, things will get better. Things will get better. This is America. We're going to figure this out. And in <laughs> July, nothing's changed. We still have limited testing and we still have limited PPE. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think we've taken any step further in this, in this department. But anyways, um, going back to your experience. So where do you think you got the virus from? So I had two positive contacts within about five or six days of my developing symptoms. Um, There had been a small outbreak at a restaurant that my wife took me to for my birthday. We ate there five days before my symptoms started. Uh, The restaurant officially closed down on March the 19th, which was a day after my symptoms started, due to nine workers there testing positive that were all symptomatic. Wow. We also had a family member that came to visit in between our time at the restaurant and the time my symptoms began, who is in the military and he's stationed at a base Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. He was not displaying any symptoms, but because of the fact that he had traveled out of state, they mandated that he be tested when he got back on base and he tested positive. That's crazy. That's crazy. In the middle of Missouri, (laughs) the last thing you think is that, okay, it's going down in New York, it's going down in California, but I'm good. So it could have been either of those, but you know, it's very real that it could be from the restaurant or it could be a visitor just like, you know, we continue to see with everyone else nowadays. But it's crazy to just even think about how a normal thing like eating at a restaurant with a loved one or, you know, just hanging out with a friend could become such a nightmare. And I'm guilty of this myself, thinking that as Americans, we weren't vulnerable. I was out traveling too. I went to New York in March and, you know, I saw Miriam actually in March. And, you know, I even took an international trip, but Miriam was smart. She canceled her trip to Spain which was a really smart move. (laughs) But honestly, when this thing first hit Italy, I remember reading an article that was written by an Italian doctor who was actually a frontline provider and who specifically challenged Americans and Britishers that you may be next, so don't think that this isn't coming to you. And I was just like, oh, whatever, you know, like we're going to be fine. But how wrong was I? Because you think you're not vulnerable to these things, but you are. And now we are here deep into it, deeper than Italy ever was. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> I mean, we definitely made the map, man. So, Damien, once you suspected that you may have contracted the virus, what was your next step? So taking in consideration the fact that I'd had two positive contacts, I decided to self-quarantine in, uh, in our basement to distance myself from my family. Uh, the next thing I did was I contacted my partners in the practice my fellows and also my staff and administration in the office to just let them know that I wasn't going to be coming in as I was having symptoms to decrease the chance of my potentially spreading it to them. And since my symptoms were initially mild, I wanted to go ahead and try to battle the the virus at home. So what I did was I kept a log of my symptoms. I kept a log of my temperature readings and I was in regular contact with my primary care physician via the telephone to give her updates. Because at this point, you know, the, the virus was still very new to us. There was a lot of things we were just kind of finding out in the news about it. And so I wanted to keep a log of all my symptoms just in case I kind of started, you know, having symptoms that got more serious, Mm -hmm. which 
which I ultimately will tell you about, I wanted to just be able to keep a timeline uh, of my symptoms just to watch the progression of it. Right. I'm actually very impressed you kept a log of your symptoms, and we'll get to that in a minute. But what I really want to know is how were you the only one with symptoms of COVID-19 when your wife was also exposed to all the same triggers? Well, as it relates to the transmission of it, there's a lot of things to, to consider, and there's a lot of things that we just don't know, right? The, the length of exposure, the viral load of the person harboring the virus, I guess there are certain we'll say associated factors as opposed to risk factors, I guess, of which in my case, I have two. I'm of African Caribbean descent and then I'm of Jamaican descent. And I do have a history of hypertension, albeit controlled. So there are numerous studies that are now coming out that are implicating certain genes that govern sexual expression and also blood types of which I'm O positive. I think we're still exploring a lot in regards to this topic. But we do have some data that looks at women specifically. In fact, um, there was an article on May 28th, 2020 in New England Journal of Medicine, and it was titled Universal Screening for SARS-CoV-2 in Women Admitted for Delivery. And this article is based on data obtained from New York City hospitals. And you'll be surprised by what they found. So in this study, they swabbed 210 asymptomatic women that were admitted to labor and delivery. And of these 210 women, 13.7% of them tested positive for SARS-CoV-2, but had no symptoms. And only 1.9% had symptoms such as fever and also tested positive. So essentially what this tells us is that 87.9% of pregnant women showed no symptoms. And this is not even taken into consideration the false negatives of up to 30% with the current RT-PCR testing modality. The WHO has reported that 63% of deaths related to COVID-19 in Europe have been among men, and that's a pretty impressive number. In New York City, men have been dying of coronavirus at almost twice that rate than that of women. And the city's health department reported in early April that 43 COVID-19 deaths for every 100,000 men compared with 23 deaths of every 100,000 women. And according to a research study published on May 10th in the European Heart Journal, this pattern could likely be due to high concentration of ACE2 in men, which is found to be a possible receptor of SARS-CoV-2. Another interesting thought is the presence of X chromosome in female. Well, this is not all that new. In fact, there's a journal of immunology published a research study looking at male and female mice in 2017 and compared the infectivity of COVID-19 in mice of different age group. In this study, they found that estrogen receptor signaling was the biggest protective mechanism in female mice, which is reflected in human patients too. So Damien, do you mind sharing with us how many days you had before your symptom peaked based on your log and what did you notice to subside? I, I will comment on that just a second, but I just want to piggyback off something you just said as it relates to the X chromosome and its implication in, in COVID-19. There's also speculation that on the X chromosome, there is a gene that confers viral immunity. And since women have two copies of the X chromosome, that gives them a significant advantage, which also points to the credence that women in general are just stronger than men. 
we should highlight. I think. <laughs> Can you say that again, please? <laughs> I have four X chromosomes right now. <laughs> that's true. That's true. And of course, we are highlighting only cis women uh, right. when we are talking about the two chromosome. Yeah, in regards to my symptoms, so for initially after I started having symptoms for the next nine days while I was in my basement, my symptoms were kind of wax and wane. I'd feel better throughout the day. But then at night, I would have like bone deep chills and also I'd have like bouts of delirium and just feeling just fatigue in general. Um, I continue to have fevers, uh, myalgias, and then I developed dyscusia. On day number 10, I developed pretty severe gastrointestinal symptoms. I, was, I had diarrhea, not to be gross or not to be graphic rather, um, and also nausea and vomiting. I had some chest tightness and then I finally developed uh, some dyspnea as well. So I informed my wife that I needed to go to the hospital. Uh, she then took me to Mercy Hospital and dropped me off at the emergency department. Unfortunately, she could not come in. Uh, the triage nurses that were outside um, that were there as part of the established flow that we had to, to bring COVID-19 patients or patients under investigation and ended up wheeling me in, in a wheelchair. They'd give me a mask. And that was scary because as I was going in, I just kept thinking about the fact that I may not be able to see my wife or my children again, because I didn't know what the outcome was going to be. That is and, really a scary yeah. to be. I was going to say that. What a scary thought that is. And a lot of people don't um, get to see their family again. They get yeah. intubated and uh, their family get to say goodbye over Zoom, uh, which something I had to uh, witness firsthand, given that I was um, to cover ICU. Uh, but the fact that you were going to be at the receiving end of all the preparation that you had early on that month must have been very surreal. Exactly. Your symptom kind of aligns with CDC. They say that the incubation period for this virus is thought to extend to 14 days with a median time of four to five days from exposure to symptoms onset. While the signs and symptoms present at illness varies, but most people experience fever, cough, fatigue, anorexia, shortness of breath, and sputum production, and myalgia. My friends who got it, they were complaining about the myalgia hmm. uh, a lot. But it's hmm. interesting that you mentioned the GI symptoms, because initially we were focused on fever and shortness of breath and cough. But a few studies from Stanford and Wuhan, China, has shown that GI symptoms such as diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting, or just loss of appetite, affects about one-third of the patients. <laughs> Yeah, so next time you're using a public restroom, um, keep this in mind. <laughs> you may actually contract a virus from touching the dirty door or even faucet. Uh, <laughs> I think we are all OCD now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. So, Damien, what happened next in the hospital? So, as they wheeled me into the ED, put me in a portion of the ED uh, for patients that were under investigation. And the ED doc that initially came in to see me, I actually know know him because of the fact that we work together all the time because he's constantly calling consoles for our service. So he was like, what are you doing here? And I was like, yeah, I actually may have this virus. And so, um, you know, he just kind of talked to me about my symptoms. We went over that again. Then he took my vital signs and saw that I was only satting 88% on room air. So they put me on four liters of oxygen via nasal cannula and my dyspnea improved and so did my oxygen saturation. It shot back up to like 93, 94. So they decided to get some imaging of my chest, a, a plain chest X-ray, which shows some bilateral infiltrates, as well as a chest CT, which showed ground glass changes in all five lobes with bilateral pneumonia. 
So they swabbed me for COVID-19 in the ED. And then we had the discussion about me being admitted. He said, I think it's the best thing. I said, yeah, I don't want to go home. <laughs> and uh, they admitted me to the COVID-19 units where they started me on IV antibiotics and uh, oxygen therapy via nasal cannula. So during the first few days that I was there, just because they didn't want to miss anything, they also tested me for other things. So they did a, a respiratory a PCR panel. They tested me for fungal pathogenic causes that can cause pneumonia tested me for rheumatological disease, for HIV, all other kinds of stuff. So in the midst of all that, though, you know, I had a lot of time to think, uh, meditate, pray. And I was thinking about how things seemed unfair that I could possibly die only being 43 years old and that life seemed a little fair. And then I thought about the possibility of actually leaving my wife with the burden of raising our six-year-old daughter and my three-year-old son. And all I wanted to do was be with them and hold them. And I couldn't. So... Wow, Damien, thank you for being so vulnerable about your experience. Uh, this is definitely a very, very heart-wrenching uh, moment and experience in your life. I want to know if they, uh, at what point in their admission, if at all, in your case, did they talk about your chance of getting intubated or were you going to be okay and um, kind of the life-saving measures that you might have faced? So, you know, I, the thing was that my symptoms by day three, started to actually get, you know, a lot better. Day three after your admission? After my admission, yeah, it started to get a lot better. And so, you know, I was never at the point where I was like in severe respiratory distress. It was mostly like dyspnea on exertion. And so they were just kind of paying attention to my vital signs. And um, yeah, pretty much that was it. I just started to improve slowly. Um, Damien, just quickly going back to the experience about your you being quarantined at home. When you were quarantined at home, what did your wife do? Did she go back to work or was she also quarantined for 14 days? Just, yeah. just for personal, um, and I'm sure audience wants to know too, because CDC guidelines are really vague when it comes to your spouse. You know, like what, what does the rest of the household do? Obviously the safest thing to do is to stay at home. But I just want to know from your experience, what was, what was done? So she actually did stay home. Um, she's a pediatric dentist and she works for a, a corporate company, a dental service organization um, called Pacific Dental Services. And so she informed um, her staff about the symptoms I was having. And so her company actually advised her to stay home once she let them know that I was having symptoms and that she had also had two positive contacts, meaning that her cousin came to our house and that she also ate at the restaurant with me. The interesting thing was that the oral surgeon that works for this company, one of his assistants, actually, her family member contracted it. And she was, that assistant was around that oral surgeon and his staff uh, for, you know, a day or two before that. So the oral surgery team in this organization had to also basically um, self-quarantine for two weeks. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Because I wish CDC would make these guidelines a little bit more clear, just so everybody's on the same page, you know. But again, our politics get in the way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's many ways that we can look at the public health implications of COVID-19. But one area that we are going to focus today is the increased susceptibility to infection in African and American population. And how should we discuss the pandemic's racist impact in the U.S. with the care and nuance? 
As ever, on Oral Mike's Facts, we turn to science and evaluate the best literature on the topic for your answers. One of the articles that came out last month in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was a widely circulated piece by two PhD researchers, they look at the troubling way racial data on COVID-19 can sometimes be misused and insisted that the experience of past pandemic suggests that the most socially marginalized population will suffer disproportionately. This is what we have seen with COVID, and so this is a great place to start that conversation. So this is an extremely tough topic, and it's also one that I'm also very passionate about. You know, Miriam, you and I have had conversations about this stuff ad nauseum. So, but before I even touch on the topic of systemic racism and how it has implications in healthcare, I just want to kind of touch briefly on the historical components of things that contribute to healthcare disparities across racial and ethnic lines. So, although the U.S. has an, an abundance of healthcare systems and it's cutting edge as it relates to innovation, we still do have healthcare disparities. Uh, and so, some of the things that we tend to see that are contributing to that are socioeconomic status, education levels completed, whether or not the patient is insured or underinsured or lack of insurance, uh, lack of access to preventative services, also whether or not they have some type of physical handicap that prevents them from being able to go in and get quality care. Um, unfortunately, these healthcare disparities disproportionately you know, impact underrepresented minorities. So now enter systemic and institutional racism. So in thinking about how those factors, socioeconomic status, levels of education, access to care, that does show that, hey, you know, maybe these are factors that may not necessarily be related to racism. But however, in 2003, the Institute of Medicine released a report entitled Unequal Treatment, Confronting Racial and Ethnic Disparities in Healthcare. And today, it still remains a landmark reference source that raised the awareness of healthcare disparities and the need to reduce them. What this study showed was that racial and ethnic minorities tend to receive lower quality of healthcare than non-minorities, even when such differences are accounted for, right, such as access to care, you know, socioeconomic status, insurance, level of education completed, that people still that are considered racial and ethnic minorities still receive suboptimal care. So institutional racism does impact healthcare accessibility within non-white minority communities by creating disparities amongst racial groups. So before I go on even more to kind of talk about how, you know, systemic racism has manifested itself in medicine from a historical perspective up until now, I think that we have to kind of start having what's called a naked lunch conversation. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with the term naked lunch, but this it's is my first time hearing it. <laughs> All right. So naked lunch, basically the, the definition of it has evolved. There was a, a, a book from like the late 1950s by an author that was entitled the, the naked lunch and the naked lunch refers to that frozen moment where everyone's sitting at the dinner table and everyone can see what's on everyone else's fork and going into their mouth. Right. Mm -hmm. Now it's evolved to mean having uncomfortable yet important conversations. So this is kind of often very hard to talk about systemic racism, but if we uh, disinfect the dialogue, then effective solutions cannot be discovered. So I think it's important 
first and foremost, to define and discuss some features of systemic racism, you know, to kind of put things in context. So uh, one of the people that I listen to a lot about this is, is a professor who's actually originally from New York. Her name is Dr. Trisha Rose. And she is a professor at Brown University. And she's from the Bronx. And she defines systemic racism as the normalization of and legitimization of an array of dynamics, which are historical, cultural, institutional, and interpersonal, that routinely advantage whites while producing cumulative and chronic adverse outcomes for people of color. Another definition by Sir William McPherson in the UK's Lawrence Report was, is the collective failure of an organization to provide an appropriate and professional service to people because of their color, culture, or ethnic origin. It can be seen or detected in processes, attitudes, and behavior that amount to discrimination through prejudice, ignorance, thoughtlessness, and racist stereotyping, which disadvantage minority ethnic people. So I think based on those two def definitions, there are some key things to consider here. The key features, number one, normalization, right? That means it's built into the system that operates every day according to societal norms. Uh, legitimization is that it is justified and it continues to function due to its attachments to everyday societal norms, despite evidence of there being adverse outcomes. And it's less overt than individual personal racism, you know, where someone is, you know, says something blatantly racist. This is something that is within a system, so it's, it's harder to detect. And now that we have a little definition of it, we talked about the key features of it, we can talk about some historical examples. First and foremost, you know, I attended Tuskegee University and I had the, the, the privilege of also growing up in that area and, and also met people who had grandparents or that were involved in Tuskegee syphilis study. So the Tuskegee syphilis study, it was a study that was actually carried out by the United States Public Health Service, right? So this was a government funded study and the goal is to study and observe the natural course of syphilis in African-American men. Now, these men, most of them, there's about 600 of them involved in the study, had all been diagnosed with syphilis. They tested their blood, and they just told them that they had bad blood and they needed some drugs to help them with their bad blood situation. So they were given the, instead of being given penicillin, which was the mainstay therapy at that time, they were given a placebo. And the result of that was the disease progressed to the point where they started seeing the sequelae of the disease, such as the CNS manifestations, the cardiovascular manifestations, and also the psychiatric uh, manifestation, which is a part of neurosyphilis. And it, just to think that that was a study that was carried out with government funding is just so appalling to me, you know, and it's just heinous in its uh, nature. On top of all of that, uh, many black veterans, another example, were unfairly denied disability pension by the Union Army Disability after the Civil War and also like after the First World War. Racism has also accounted for disproportional rates of diseases such as AIDS among ethnic minorities. In an article from 1992, Janice Hutchinson argues that the federal government has responded slowly to the AIDS epidemic in minority communities and their attempts have been insensitive to ethnic diversity in preventative medicine, community health maintenance, and age treatment services. Uh, in the prison population, uh, there are also issues as it relates to incarcerated black males. Uh, public health studies have found that incarcerated men, when returned to their communities, raise the risk of infection by passing the virus on to heterosexual partners, having acquired it in prison due to higher than average rates of sexual assault and rape. 
no access to condoms, injectable drugs uh, being accessible, lack of clean needles, uh, along with tattooing, and inadequate access to healthcare and treatment after being released due to poverty and unemployment. Um, institutional racism can also impact minority health through health-related policies, as well as through other factors indirectly. For example, racial segregation, which was initially designed through governmental legislation known as redlining, uh, disproportionately exposed Black communities to chemical substances such as lead, respiratory irritants such as diesel fumes, crowding, litter, and noise. Uh, racial ethnic minorities have also have a disadvantaged status uh, as it relates to education, uh, employment, as they're more likely to be uninsured, which significantly impedes their ability to be able to access preventive diagnostic and therapeutic health services. And then there's other environmental issues. Um, racial and ethnic minorities in the U.S. are exposed to greater health and environmental risk than the general population. Unfortunately, race and class is a reliable indicator of where industrial plants and waste facilities are located. Um, we've seen that in Flint and Warren County, Flint, Michigan and Warren County, North Carolina. Institutional racism encompasses these land use decisions significantly contribute to health issues such as asthma, obesity, and diabetes. So COVID-19 pandemic has disproportionately affected African-Americans with more dying from disease than other racial groups. So in testifying before Congress, Dr. Anthony Fauci testified that a combination of factors affects the disproportionate numbers of minorities that are infected and responding as to whether institutional racism has played a part in the data gleaned by the CDC, he pointed out that the risk of infection, along with underlying conditions and certain demographics, is a factor, but he also affirmed this was the case. So therefore, it's not shocking that the pandemic is hitting the most marginalized populations in the U.S., the Black, Hispanic, and Native American populations. So um, I know I said a lot, but, you know, history has shown us that Unfortunately, racism has made its way into um, healthcare, and I think even more so than law, healthcare. And when we take that Hippocratic oath, right? There has to be like a a blind component to it, right? They say justice is blind. Well, healthcare should also be blind in that, regardless of race, religion, creed, level of education, uh, socioeconomic status, that all patients deserve our dedication to them to provide exemplary care despite their differences, you know, from us and, you know, from the, or from the majority of the people that are at our facility. So. You really broke it down, I think, quite well. And mm -hmm. uh, although there is a role for individual pursuit of over overcoming our own passive biases, mm -hmm. highlighting some of the systematic issues that you mentioned definitely requires having these uncomfortable conversations and difficult conversations. I think we're having a naked lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Although it is 7.15. <laughs> no, but honestly, thank you so much for bringing out these points, as uncomfortable as it is to talk about these things. I think it is important that we address them. And we always keep going back to, oh, they don't have access to care. Oh, it must be the genetics. But there's so much more to it than just those things, you know? And yes, on the surface, healthcare is supposed to be blind, where we provide equal care to everyone. But clearly, that's not the case. And you know, if we keep turning a blind eye to it, we're not really doing justice to our patients, to ourselves. Right. And I think this is why I really like the article, Racial Health Disparities and COVID-19, 
Caution and Context, was recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine. As we know, in early April, Wisconsin and Michigan released data showing strike racial disparities in rates of COVID-19 cases and deaths. And while the data of disproportionate impact is clear, the authors warn that without sufficient contextualization of the data, we could draw false and problematic conclusions such as the purported biological explanation, which assume that congenital qualities unique to specific racial minorities predispose them to higher rates of particular disease, which is false. Additionally, for all the public health professional, it is worth noting that there is a well-established multidisciplinary critique of biological definition of race that has shown that remnants of such thinking persist into the present. Our authors also warn that publishing or repeating long disparity figures without proper context can give rise to explanations grounded in racial stereotypes about behavioral pattern. An example they gave was during tuberculosis outbreaks in the turn of 20th century, urban South Black people as a group were frequently described by public officials as hopelessly incorrigible. That is, they disavowed hygiene guidelines and were wise-ridden and therefore were more prone to behaving in a way that made them more likely to contract the disease. So finally, when we speak about racial data, it is often geographically bound. Granularity of data allows more fine-grained analysis, including multi-level spatial modeling. But when they're presented by themselves, such granular data can reinforce what the sociologist Loic Waquant has dubbed territorial stigmatization, whereby resource-deprived neighborhoods suffer from blemish of place, and that's in quote, and thought to be, again, quoting, composed essentially of poor people, minorities, and foreigners, many of whom have already been marginalized by the broader society. News reports about racial disparities in COVID-19 deaths in Washington, D.C., for example, have highlighted three wards with large percentages of Black residents. And similar dispatches on neighborhoods in areas like Queens and Bronx have focused on their density and racial composition as if those factors alone explain disproportionate rates of infection and death without even discussing environmental and socioeconomic explanations, such as substandard housing and marginalized healthcare access. All the points that you mentioned earlier, Damien. Yeah. So Damien, going back to you, what happened next? What was your path to recovery like? And we are very thankful you're here with us today. Yeah, thank God. Well, as I said, you know, miraculously, by day three of my admission, I uh, began to improve clinically. I wasn't having subjective fevers anymore. I wasn't having, um, I was starting to get my appetite back. The myalgias were resolving, and I was no longer requiring um, oxygen therapy to maintain a normal saturation. They, they uh, you know, started weaning me down, and by day three, I was on one liter. And uh, by the, at the, in the morning of day three, Uh, By the end of day three, I was, you know, I did not need any oxygen at all. Uh, Surprisingly, on that day three, my test came back negative. And in addition to my, the other rheumatological panels and stuff that they drew, the viral and fungal and other bacterial, like pathogen panels that they they looked up also came back negative. So I can tell you that, you know, I was under the care 
primarily by my hospitalist, but also ID and, and pulmonology were involved. And all of them were just baffled. They're like, this doesn't make any sense, given the fact that you had two positive contacts, you had all the hallmark signs and symptoms. And they told me, though, that because of the fact that I tested negative, they wanted to move me off of the COVID-19 unit. I emphasized to them that I didn't trust the results and that I had been doing my own like research via my phone, even while I was in the hospital bed. And I've been seeing a lot of you know, literature pointing to the fact that there was a high number of false negative. And I expressed my concern about moving off of the unit, moving to another unit where I could, you know, potentially infect other patients and staff. But be that as it may, they did move me to another unit. But while I was there and sitting in the bed, when people would come in, I asked them to purposely stay six feet away from me. I had hand sanitizer there. I sprayed Lysol around my bed. um, And I also kept a mask on when they were in the room. So the next day, or day five, rather, I, I passed my walk study with respiratory therapy, and then I was discharged to home. One month later, because of the fact that I just knew I had COVID, I took the antibody test, and it came back positive, and my tighter numbers were through the roof. So as it relates to like the, the false negatives, too, which we were actually seeing quite a lot at our institution, and it also mirrored what was going on at many other institutions, such as Mayo Clinic. The, t- the two things about it, It's a very technique sensitive test, especially when you're doing the nasal swab. But because of the fact that we were inadequately prepared too, they were mass producing these tests, just trying to get out tests, trying to get out tests. And the problem with that is that they couldn't take the test through a thorough validation like process. So I spoke with a a professor of epidemiology um, at Mayo Clinic, and he happens to also be an ID doctor. So he was there treating those patients. So his background is very unique. And I, and I saw, I reached out to him because I saw that he had written a paper on the number of false negatives and developed a new protocol uh, for patients that were under investigation that tested positive. And because of my conversation with him, I was actually able to uh, advocate at our hospital to implement the, the protocol they have at Mayo Clinic, which says that if you're a hospitalized patient under investigation, you have the hallmark signs and symptoms, Uh, with a history of a positive contact that you should be kept on a COVID unit, even with a negative test. And I just think that makes so much more sense, you know, to help protect patients. I I agree, honestly. um, So my husband's um, in in internal medicine, and he always tells me about, you know, there'll be patients, they'll have all the hallmark signs, the chest x-ray will be indicative of COVID-19, and the test will come back negative. And, you know, they'll retest at some point, and then it'll come back positive. And it's surprising can we trust this test? Obviously, it's been misleading for all of us so many times. I just think going by signs and symptoms might just be a better thing, (laughs) as great as that is. Yeah. Yeah. And the chest x-ray and kind of like your oxygen saturation, I think those kind of three things together have a very high sensitivity of indicating that you have COVID-19. But we are so glad and relieved that you were able to fight this disease. You are truly our OMS COVID-19 survivor hero. (laughs) (laughs) And um, why don't you comment on how long it takes after discharge to get back into your workflow and workout routine? Well, this is the thing. You know, I think as surgeons, we all have this internal, I don't know, fortitude to kind of want to get back out there and, and, and get back to what we're doing. But I, I realized that I wanted to get back to work, but I had to take it easy. So it was kind of good that we weren't seeing as many elective cases in the office. And so I went back to work about a week and a half after my discharge. And, you know, I was seeing three, four patients, uh, maybe a day. 
Um, most of those patients were coming in for some urgent or emergent thing, you know, odontogenic pain, or maybe they had like a little uh, vestibular abscess. And so it gave me time to be able to sit down <laughs> and relax and rest. And it's, it's taken me a while. I, I would say I'm probably at right now, now that I'm three, four months out away from it, just about, I'm probably, I would say at 95% back to my pre-morbid state as it relates to my respiratory status. So right after you have a really bad pneumonia, you know, you can have this uh, inflammatory, it's called like respiratory inflammatory condition. Anyway, it's, it's something that's, it's, it's mimics asthma. So, you know, with dyspnea on exertion, uh, you have to oftentimes use like a rescue inhaler, like albuterol, plus my primary care doctor started me on a Brio inhaler. So that's a long-term you know, bronchodilator with a steroid, and that has helped tremendously. So now I am back working out. I can actually jog and sprint. I may feel it the next day a little bit, but it's not like incapacitating, you know? And so um, I should yeah. be going to probably next week take my, my follow-up chest CT to see how I'm you know, doing objectively. That's interesting. So this was a very life-threatening and very scary experience for you. So how has it changed your outlook on life, if I may ask you? Um, yeah, it's a good question. Um, it has taught me how tenuous life can be um, from my own experience. And then, you know, hearing the experience of others, I had a surgical colleague who at my institution, uh, the day after um, I discharge, got discharged, rather, uh, he lost his son to it. And so it's taught me that we need to live each day with integrity and also trying to focus on spending, you know, time with those that we love and just making sure that we are prioritizing things in life. But I also think about, you know, the other implications of it, in particular on our healthcare system, which has so many components that are already broken uh, that we've talked about, even though I think we have some of the best healthcare here in, in America, we still have to be continually trying to improve. But COVID, you know, is in a, in a unique way has caused like some setbacks uh, and particularly the economic devastation of it, which will have long-term implications on our healthcare system. So the economic impact has been devastating. At one point, the U.S. was losing $1.4 billion per day uh, due to the deferment of elective cases, which significantly contributed to the decline of the GDP. So it was stated that over 50% of the decline of the GDP since the pandemic has reached our shores has been to just the deferment of elective cases. Hospitals and, and other healthcare facilities uh, in an economic um, crisis, and then this has now led to uh, terminations and furloughs of healthcare workers at these various institutions. So ultimately that's gonna result in the closure of hospitals and also the closure of private practices. Healthcare insurance will also be impacted uh, reimbursements to hospitals and to clinicians will be impacted as there's going to be lots of fee schedule negotiations or renegotiations. Um, there will be a lot of coverage disputes in the aftermath of the pandemic. I personally experienced a coverage dispute uh, because I got a hospital bill and my out-of-portion pocket was like over $2,000. Now, I'm blessed that I'm in a situation where I'm able to afford that, but I was able to call my healthcare insurance you know, go over my explanation of benefits. And they told me the things that they were covering and were not covering. And there were certain things that they were not covering because of the fact that my COVID test initially came back negative. But then they were able to see that my, my antibody test came back positive and that I had the hallmark sign. So then they had to 
go through that whole process again, which ultimately brought my bill down. You know, and like I said, I'm in a position where I could have paid that. But still, this thing about the other people who are not in that position, right, where they don't have the, the finances to be able to pay that. And there's like going to be coverage disputes. Yeah. Wow. That kind of makes me mad that insurance companies want to decide reimbursement based on a test that's not as sensitive or specific as it should be. I agree with you. You were actually sick and you actually needed healthcare. And I'm sure as a doctor who, you know, is an attending in a hospital and is a chair of a department, you have a pretty good health insurance. And for them to give right. that kind of runaround to you and yeah. other people who have no idea what they have and they just literally sign up something that was trendy, uh, right. I think the result of it could be devastating. I agree. On top of losing a loved one. Exactly. Exactly. There's so many angles of public health that this pandemic has brought to surface that like Reedy mentioned earlier, and you, Damien, did a great job of uh, laying out all the facts. If we start ignoring them, then we are really turning a blind side to, to something that's like staring us into the eye. I agree. And I don't even know where we are with vaccine situation. I mean, currently there are seven big companies in America that are working on it. And I think Moderna has proceeded to phase two trial. But even after we have a vaccine, God knows how long it'll take for them to distribute to the whole world, essentially. And who gets the priority and who doesn't? And if you already have antibodies, do you need the vaccine or should you still get it? We don't know. <laughs> this is the, the, the thing, too, in, in watching like the, the trend. Obviously, we've all been seeing the second wave of it. You know, and the, the one thing that probably makes me the most upset about this thing is that this virus, it's not biased, right? It doesn't care if you're Black, White, Asian, you know, Middle Eastern, uh, Republican, Democrat, atheist, agnostic, Christian, Muslim, you know, Hindu. It doesn't care, right? But the, my problem is that, you know, right now there, there's so many things in the media that are telling people that this is potentially a hoax. And because of the fact that we do trust, you know, our media, what ends up happening is people hear that and then that has an impact on their behavior, right? Someone sent me uh, something the other day and it was a screenshot of this, this gentleman who went on Twitter and he posted the end of April. He's like, you know, I'm not wearing a mask. I'm going to go out and do what I want to do. This is America. This is a free country. And this is a hoax anyway. Two weeks later on social media, he posted, oh, so I have to self-quarantine. I've been told that, you know, I have uh, COVID-19. The next day he posted, this sucks. I'm having difficulty breathing. I can't believe this is happening to me. And then the very next screenshot was a picture of his obituary. And then, so this gentleman succumbed to it. So what we need to be able to do, and I hope people will take this seriously, is that we are still in the midst of a pandemic, and I know there's so much else going on in our country with the protests and all these things, but I want people to still be cognizant of it. In Texas, they've got 25-year-olds that were otherwise healthy on ECMO. It's crazy to think about, you know, and so I, I just yeah. really, seriously. And I, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, all of us obviously understand this, and we're doing our part, but I just wish people would just be like, you know, if this is the best for all of us, let's just do it. As hard as it is to breathe through the mask. I mean, I at work, I wear N95, wear uh, another surgical mask on top of it, wear my headlight, and then wear 
a face shield on top of it. You think I'm comfortable being nine months pregnant and doing all those things? No, I'm not. But you know what? This is what's best for everyone. So we're going to do it. Yeah. Yeah, Some people call that common sense. Yeah. It's not that common. (laughs) My wife always says common sense is not a flower that grows in everybody's garden. (laughs) That's a very nice way of saying it. And uh, so, Damon, you kind of talked about the generalized thought process of its uh, potential impacts on healthcare system. Let's dive uh, a little bit deeper to our own specialty. Can you tell us what you think is going to happen for our own specialty? It is going to have impact on all specialties, but you know, it, it impacts us in some unique ways. So first and foremost, the private practice revenue based on like office-based elective procedures are going to have an impact on the financial health of a practice due to the postponement of those elective procedures, right? We've been trying to defer elective cases as part of our mitigating initiatives to kind of keep the the spread of the virus from from spreading, but it does impact us financially. So we're not going to, you know, initially, I mean, we're back pretty busy now, but initially there was a six, seven week period where we, yes, we weren't doing wisdom teeth. Yes, we weren't doing dental implants. Um, It was mostly patients that were coming in that had, like I said, odontogenic pain, or if they had some type of like infection. So that had an impact on us. You know, we had to get a PPP loan to be able to make sure that we could pay our staff and to pay, you know, the outstanding bills that we had to our vendors. It it has implications because of the fact that we work in the maxillofacial region, which harbors uh, heavy viral loads um, in the setting of performing aerosol generating procedures. There's anesthesia implications. With that, and you know, most of our patients for our bigger cases need to be nasotracheally intubated, right? It's gonna impact resident training as the number of clinic patients have decreased this year, which impacts a resident's dental alveolar experiential. Um, elective procedures such as orthognathic started slowing down, TMJ surgery. Um, so all those things you know, impacts the experience of senior and chief level residents. Some hospitals may be impacted by, or some residency programs rather, may be impacted by hospital closures. We are now experiencing a tremendous yet expected rise in maxillofacial trauma. The week before last, I operated Monday through Friday all the way to like 9, 10 o'clock at night, and it was all trauma. We had a lot. Wow. That is impressive. Wow. A lot. And I, I mean, the thing about it is, too, it's, it's some of it, of that trauma that we're seeing is an indirect result of the pandemic. Because we had two gunshots, self-inflicted gunshots. One gentleman was laid off by Enterprise, which is based here in St. Louis. So he lost his job as a result of the pandemic. Interpersonal violence from people sheltering in place. We had another gentleman who attempted to hang himself because he lost his job. And his wife walked in, saw him hanging, and he was biting into his tongue. She was able to cut him down, but he had a, a pretty extensive tongue laceration you know, that we had to end up taking him to the operating room. We had a guy that said he just needed to get out the house because he couldn't stay in the house much longer. The the shelter in place was driving him crazy. And he decided to work on a tiller for his yard and a tire exploded in his face, right? So, you know, like I said, you know, that rise in trauma correlates with the economic downturn. We're seeing that, you know, we've been still using PPE, uh, social distancing measures to protect our patients and staff. We've implemented vericidal infection procedure control. We have a mixture of uh, diluted peroxide, saline, and Paradex. Now, is there any science behind that? Most of, most of that, I think, is just anecdotal. 
um, but we've been doing it. But there is some research from UConn, my alma mater, that's showing that diluted betadine, right, with normal saline can actually be versatile to COVID-19. So they're saying 10% betadine, right, if you take half a cc of that and you mix it with 9.5 cc's of normal saline, right, and you have basically a diluted uh, solution in 10 cc's, that if the person gargles with that for 15 seconds, you have 15 seconds of contact, that it can kill the virus. That sounds like it's very promising. So that, that's one of the things that we're going to try to implement this week in our office. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And then, of course, you know, just even like for me, my last point is that, you know, it's going to have emotional and psychological implications for healthcare workers. You see how the, the physician in, in New York, she took her own life. She just couldn't take it, you know, anymore. The, the layoffs here, some of the physicians that got laid off at our institution, they're in situations where a lot of households in the Midwest are very traditional, where the, man, the, the male works and the wife doesn't work. And so that's one source of income in the household, you know? So yeah, and just people just seeing all that illness and, and, and death, you know, can have, you know, it's psychological uh, stresses can impact, you know, how you function as a person. So it impacted me personally. And now I'm personally back at work on the front lines fighting it. So yeah, and thank you so much for doing that. Another dynamic of this pandemic was how fragile most jobs are. You know, as a physician and as a surgeon, I never considered that my friends who have gone to, you know, four years of undergrad, now four years of doctorate degree and are like general dentists will apply for unemployment. You know, that is one of the other biases that we often have. We're like, oh, unemployment is just for people who, who yeah. can't hold the job. They, you know, it's their fault. You know, those kind of like passive bias towards uh, applying for unemployment is something that has been shaken by this pandemic. The psychological impact of it was devastating, being that you think that you don't have a sense of uh, financial security. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point, Miriam. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, 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 it's very devastating. You know, it's interesting, though. <laughs> There's some industries that are doing surprisingly well. Uh, if, if, if you happen to be an alcohol vendor, you are doing great right now. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yep, for sure. Alcohol consumption is up by 450%. That's, uh, that's some oh evidence-based information for you guys out there. <laughs> but uh, again, uh, Damien, we really want to thank you for sharing your survival story with us, uh, highlighting the, the effects of um, racism in our healthcare and kind of making us looking at it from a wider framework is something that we need uh, to uh, to do. And you kind of like had that naked lunch with us. So thanks for the naked lunch. Welcome. Put your clothes back on. <laughs> so I wholeheartedly agree that many lessons have been learned through this experience and we continue to learn, but our implementation has still been extremely weak. But I want to give a shout out to EDA for forthcomingly helping provide PPEs, free KN95 masks, and even finding resources for N95s and means of obtaining gowns and gloves and everything else. I, I really applaud them for making all their efforts. Yeah, uh, it was very hard to, you know, there was a moment of panic where we didn't know where everything is going to come from. And uh, some organizations really stepped up and really provided and advocated for the representatives. So Damien, thank you once again for sharing your survival story with us. And um, while we are still exploring possible treatment options and the 
roll off antibodies and vaccines. All we can do for now is practice our hygiene like never before and keep wearing our masks. Um, Damien, do you have any parting thoughts? Um, just, I just wrap up by kind of piggybacking off what you guys said in the introduction about the fact that this is an ever-evolving situation. You know, we're dealing with an enemy that we're just now facing. We're learning a lot about it. I feel like every other week we're going, oh, I didn't know the virus could do that. And so, you know, as our research continues to progress and our experience with with the virus, you know, I think we just have to be flexible because there's going to be new treatment modalities and protocols based on the evidence that they find that we're going to have to implement into our practices. And so I guess the last thing I would just say is that as surgeons, we have the responsibility to provide exemplary surgical care while being empathetic to our patients, you know, and I think about that all the time. And the one thing about my experience on how I got very sick is it uh, has certainly taught me, I was able to channel those feelings of uncertainty and fear. And, you know, they say that experience is a cruel teacher. First you take the test and then you learn the lesson. Well, the experience has taught me to be more uh, empathetic to my patients because of the fact now that I can appreciate uh, the emotions of fear, you know, uncertainty, and pretty much that's it. So for those of you guys who want to read about Damien's experience in more detail, he actually has his story published in Amos Today. The recent edition that will be coming out will have his story published. So make sure you guys take a look. Also, Damien has, like we said earlier, a fellowship for Trauma TMJ. They do really badass stuff down there in St. Louis. So if you want to be more proficient, do send him an email and he'll be happy to consider your application, I'm sure. <laughs> I just want to mention one more thing. Damien helped me a lot during my oral boards and preparation. And uh, we did a lot of mock board type cases together. And I would say he's a major reason why I passed my oral boards. But um, he also has a book coming out on oral boards. Damien, do you want to talk about your book? Yeah, so I'll just kind of tell you how it even, uh, how the, the evolution of this book. So uh, myself and, and a friend of mine, Robert Reddy, who's also an OMS doc, we took the oral boards at the same time. And in preparing for it, you know, we were able to find some resources out there to help prepare for the boards, but we didn't really see like a comprehensive textbook that just kind of brings everything together, like the didactic information pearls to take the exam and also having questions as far as board cases are concerned. So, you know, what we did was after we went through the experience of doing board review courses, we did the the Nashville course, which was excellent. Jacksonville, which was just on a whole nother level. Dr. Fatahi and Dr. Fernandez were amazing. And after coming back, after having our experience, we said, hey, why don't we come up with a comprehensive text that will be able to give people the salient didactic points that they need to focus on, and as well as giving them tips to actually navigate their, their way through the exam. And three, four years later, here we are. So it's finally it's scheduled for release in August, and I'm looking forward to it coming out. And I want to thank both of you guys, because both of you guys made uh, significant contributions to the book in, in writing chapters. And the good thing is there's so many, you know, Mount Sinai attendings, representation that's there, you know, from uh, Dr. Raymer in the pathology section to Dr. Montezem to, you know, Dr. Correa to uh, Brett Miles to Dr. Valori to Michael Schiffman. And so all over it, Sinai represent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So we'll look you... forward to the book. Yeah. What's the title of your book again? So the title of the book 
is oral board review for oral and maxillofacial surgery. Aaron Tucker is an editor. Um, Carlos Ramirez, um, Ashish Patel, just all of this, uh, an amalgamation essentially of all these, um, these different generations of, of um, OMF um, surgeons that have um, all come together to put together what I think is a, an amazing textbook that is going to be a vital part in helping candidates, you know, obtain board certification. And where can we find this book? It's published by Springer and you will be able to access it online. There'll be an electronic copy that's uh, you can download, but you can actually also order um, the hard copy and I'll make sure I get those details to you guys so you can. Yeah, absolutely. We'll love to put it on Insta. Um, Damien, we gonna we know that we're gonna see you again in the show. We're gonna have um, clinical scenarios to kind of like run down with you later on uh, down in the line. So, but until next time, uh, thank you for tuning in with Oral Max Facts again. Damien, thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll see you all in the next episode. Bye. Goodbye. Yeah.